Welcome to the Whose Body Is It podcast. I'm your host, Isabella Malvin. For those who don't know me, I'm a birth worker, a life coach, hypnotist, and a former liberal feminist turned radical truth teller. On this podcast, I expose the forces at play attempting to control our minds and bodies, such as transgender ideology, pornography, prostitution, and so much more. Together, we'll untangle patriarchal lies as you listen to jaw-dropping interviews with women from around the world. Warning, while listening to this podcast, you might find yourself triggered or perhaps notice where you've been biting your tongue on the issues that matter most to you. In my coaching and hypnosis, I help women and men stop getting triggered by every single thing, cultivate resilience, stop unwanted behaviors, and increase self-confidence. You can book your first session at whosebodyisit.com, and you can find that link in the episode show notes. And I just want to say that it's because of your endless support that I'm able to interview amazing women, get their stories out, and produce regular episodes for you. So with that being said, please like, comment, and subscribe to my channel on YouTube. And if you're listening in, leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And also consider making a financial contribution via the link in my show notes. You can also visit my activist sticker shop. My pro-woman stickers have the power to intercept transhumanist programming. So take a photo of your stickers out in the wild and tag me on Instagram at Whose Body Is It? Without further ado, let's get into this week's story. Jennifer Law, author, documentarian, and founder and president of the Center for Bioethics and Culture Network, returns to the podcast today. Jennifer has been fighting assisted reproductive technology for 20 years. Her interest was piqued when her college-aged daughters were targeted for egg selling. It was during the height of the stem cell research craze, and she realized that this profit-driven medical research was being built on the backs of vulnerable young women. Her first film, Exploitation, earned her the wrath of big fertility, but they've hardly celebrated her work since. In her most recent article, she asks, who owns the human body? Examining the ethical implications of using a brain-dead woman's body as a surrogate. If a woman has agreed to be an organ donor, does it follow that her body could be kept on life support in a vegetative state in order to gestate a child for an infertile couple? What about the well-being of the fetus? which will grow surrounded by the sound of beeping monitors instead of the sounds of its mother's voice. Assisted reproductive technology comes with many ethical pitfalls, and we'll explore these as well as the connection to gender ideology in the sterilization of minors. You can learn more from Jennifer at the upcoming event, It's Bigger Than Texas, on April 20th in Austin. This event is hosted by Partners for Ethical Care, and I will be moderating the panel. The day following the panel, Jennifer's film, The Detransition Diaries, will be screened. It's going to be an awesome few days you will not want to miss. Jennifer, you've been on the podcast before. Last time we spoke, we were talking about your film, uh, Transmission. Uh, and you are one of the panelists for the upcoming event. It's bigger than Texas. Uh, that's April 20th. So that's going to be so awesome. I'm moderating the, that event. I'm really excited to have you in, in Austin. So that's our, that's the plug to come join us in Austin, yeah. April, <laughs> April 20th. Um, but before we get into your most recent articles, can you just talk a little bit about your how you started talking about the harms and kind of ethical questions around 
the surrogacy industry? Yeah, sure. Well, that it's it's actually been kind of many, many years I've been working in this space uh, in the whole area of assisted reproductive technology. I mean, I'm a woman. I'm interested in um, fertility and infertility, uh, as you are with a lot of the work that you've done in your career. You know, I raised three now young adult women daughters. <laughs> I saw them going to you know university and having their school papers advertise you know lots of money for them to sell their eggs and become egg donors. So I actually dipped into this whole space in the space of egg donation. And it was at the time when George Bush was the president and the whole country was gripped with this stem cell human cloning debate to use all these surplus embryos to develop new novel cures and treatments and who could be you know against cures and treatments. But there was a few of us that were kind of going, no, wait a minute, you know, we're basically building, you know, um, highly profit motive treatments and cures off of the reproductive bodies of of young women who are going to be required. And and when I produced my first film in that space, it was called Exploitation. Um, You know, it was at that time when the film came out that we thought, oh, we're really onto something. One, because big fertility, I call it big fertility, was red hot mad that we would dare like make that movie and actually win, you know, film awards for it. Um, So it was like, like, oh, we've really hit a nerve here. We're on, we're onto something, you know, when you poke the beast and the beast howls, you kind of know that you're, you're doing something right. And um, most people don't realize just in my writing and speaking, women came to me. So I didn't set out to go find these women. Women were coming to me because they said, here's somebody who's raising the concerns about the health and well-being of young women. Um, Let me tell you my story, because the fertility agency doesn't want to hear from me. You know, they they don't want to own up that anything that they've done has caused any of these problems I'm having. And so through that that um, realization at the time when we made exploitation, we just said, we're going to really peel back the onion and take a deep dive in what's going on. Why do we have now a million frozen human embryos in the United States um, and climbing? And it's because of this unfettered reproductive technology and follow the money. It's very lucrative. It promises all kinds of you know, you'll get the baby of your dreams, we'll help you just give us, you know, piles of money. So, um, so we did, we've made actually two films on surrogacy one, the first one was called breeders, a subclass of women. And because the debate is always around, should we have surrogacy? If we have surrogacy, how do we have it? Do we allow women to be paid? Or only, you know, altruistic women just do it because they're nice? Um, do we let strangers have babies for strangers? Do we let sisters have babies for sisters? You know, do we let um, women have babies for gay couples, family members, you know, all that we just, and so in that film, we actually interviewed a surrogate who did it for all those different reasons. No money for money for a, helping a family member, for helping a stranger. Um, we actually interviewed women who, they were the biological mother in their surrogate right arrangement. So their their egg and their womb, as well as, um, what they call the horrible gestational car- carrier, gestational surrogate term. Um, and all of these women had horrible short and long-term complications as it related to their desire to help somebody. And then um, the last film that we did in surrogacy is called Big Fertility. Follow, it's all about the money. And that we followed one young woman in the United States who did um, domestic as well as international surrogacy because we wanted to show how the whole reproductive tourism the global landscape really is even more harmful if you will to women um, as you know you know couples from all around the world come to america to hire women so you know there's uh, i always like to say there's something for everybody to hate about surrogacy (laughs) whether you hate the you know the industrial commercialization of women's bodies whether you you know are undone by the you know the haves versus the have-nots it's always lower income poor women that are you know being the surrogates Um, whether you're concerned about maternal child health and bonding and all those things that we know are normally natural good that we want to promote with women who are you know expecting babies you know breastfeeding and all that all that stuff Mm -hmm. so so here I am Still, almost 20 years later, fighting, fighting this big, um, big fertility. It, it's wild that, that, you know, the social justice warriors can ignore like the, the, the big class issue in, in all of this, you know, which that you've mentioned that, you know, only the people with money can rent the insides of, 
of women's bodies and by by these children. So it, it is not a like human rights issue. It's not a well, it is on the side of obviously the surrogate, but the the entitlement around um, access. Uh, you know, I know you, you talk a lot about in the films, um, you know, it's all about what the adults want, what the adults want. And I think that was reiterated in your recent piece called Who Owns the Human Body, where you, you, you know, I don't know maybe I'll, I'll let you get into that. But, you know, I, I saw that you mentioned, um, again, in there, like, what are the rights of a dying person? You know, what are the rights of a child who's been gestated by a dying woman and you know you mentioned the experience of the child you know in the womb only hearing like beeping the sounds of like medical technology you know versus the sounds of their mother's voice or the father's voice or like the wind or you know any anything other other than that so can you talk about that that new proposal or not so new proposal that that's going on behind the scenes as a kind of a um next level uh, of third-party reproductive technology. Yeah. Well, let me back into it by saying, you know, even like the social justice warrior types who want to, you know, say that this is, you know, a wonderful thing for women to do. It's empowering. It's economically empowering. It's a woman's choice to do whatever she wants with her body, blah, 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 you know, that kind of stuff. So mostly everybody that will recognize that surrogacy can, can be exploitative, can be um, an, an uh, an unequal um, arrangement where the haves, you know, have an upper hand over the have not. So most people want to say things like, well, we can regulate all those problems away, right? If we have good contracts, if we have mm. good laws on the books, good pu- public policy, you know, Texas, you know, the state where we'll both be seeing each other in person and, you know, allows for commercial surrogacy, as long as a, if it's a married couple, and it's a heterosexual couple. They, I, I can't remember if the language of the law requires them to have some kind of an infertility. But so everybody tries to think we can manage this. So this one woman who re- came out with this article that was the, you know, who owns the body piece that I wrote, recognized that surrogacy can be problematic. And so her solution was, well, we'll use brain dead women <laughs> to become surrogates. And, and she makes an argument it's it's logical on one level as far as it's coherent in by saying if women have already agreed to be organ donors if they become you know brain dead or if they die um that the and the uterus is an organ that they could you know include in the language of their organ donor you know desires um that their their uterus could be could be used now I worked in hospital clinical nursing for many years and mostly in intensive care. So I do um, you know, talk about this woman is not going to be treated in a dignified way, a, a woman who's clearly dying and just allowed to, to die, you know, within you know minutes or days, however long it takes a body to die once life support is removed from a brain dead person. She's going to be, you know, artificially kept alive for nine months. And, you know, as the brain dead person is on artificial respiration and mechanical support for nine months, you know, that the body doesn't like that. The body's trying to die. So, you know, Mm -hmm. people get infections, people get bed sores, people, you know, their, their muscles, you know, just wither away, you know, their body is just disintegrating. Um, So I think one, at one level, it's just an inhumane and an undignified way to treat a dying woman. And then when you look at the child who's in this womb for nine months, and I know the intensive care setting, you know, nobody sleeps. The lights are on all the time. The the, the sounds of machines are on all the time. Um, the, the woman is being, you know, manipulated and taken care of. And, you know, there's something always being done to her body, whether it be checking her vital signs, giving her medication, feeding her, turning her, cleaning her, whatever. And you have to think that that's got to be some kind of a traumatic environment. You know, when we talk about artificial wombs, right, artificial mm-hmm. wombs are coming and people see that as a, a solution to infertility and not exploiting women for their wombs. Um, but again, it's a mechanical environment. We're human beings. You know, we're, we're, we're connected. And when you look at 
um, mothers and babies during pregnancy. And I, I talk about how mothers sing to their babies and they talk, you know, they rub their belly and they rock and they read and, you know, the, and their mother lays down and rests and everything gets quiet and still. And the mother's up busy because she's cooking or doing laundry or, you know, and that, that's a much more natural environment. Uh, and then down the road, when that child is old enough, because I assume that they will be told and not lied to, you know, when they find out how they came into the world, I just think that is, you know, I mean, who wants to sign their child up to be that first guinea pig that gets gestated in a dying woman's body? It's bizarre to me, and it's cruel, and it's it's not medicine. It's not the way healthcare providers are to care for us. Is there anything that could be done to protect ourselves from being one of these women? Like, for example, if like I have on my, I don't, but if I did have on my driver's license that I, uh, you know, am an organ donor, I mean, what legal protections can women set up for their own bodies? This is like, this is so, I mean, obviously this is so frightening and who will be the first women, you know, so according to this article or to this woman who 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 has proposed this, does she think that women are going to consent to this? Or she's just saying if they are saying that they are organ donors, then we should assume they would also want to do this. How does she think this is going to Does she think women are going to volunteer themselves? for this or well it's I, th I think like i said she just she's because we already have this mechanism in place right you either have a, a dot on your driver's license or you have an advanced directive of if i can't ever speak for myself i want you all to know you know that i will do x y and z for me i don't have the dot on my driver's license my family knows and has access to my durable durable power of attorney for healthcare and they know my wishes for if I ever become in that position what I want to have done with my body because I just want my family people who I know and trust to know what those wishes are versus the government or my insurance provider or, um, or even my doctor so I think within that mechanism that we have in place in the United States, I can't speak to other countries, but in the United States, a woman who doesn't want to do that would have to make her wishes known. And whether that be she puts it in her advanced directive so her family knows, I'm happy to donate my kidneys if I'm dead, but I don't want to be a surrogate. I don't want to be kept alive for nine months to gestate somebody's baby. You know, you would just have to spell it out. But I think if you don't spell it out and you just are a generic organ donor, um, the the law is you have designated yourself as an organ donor, which means they can take your eyes, your ears, your, you know, your liver, your kidney, your skin, you know, kind of like pick over your carcass and, and just ha take whatever they can, they can use. So I think in, in people who don't, who want to do some kind of organ donation, but not this, they would have to just explicitly state that, or they would just have to say, I don't want to be an organ donor at all. Um, versus it just assumed if you check that little box and whatever we want to, to do um, is is okay. Now, I think when she wrote this, it was more of a hypothetical. I don't think she was saying, she wasn't moving to like, let's introduce this as policy. It was just here, here's an idea I have. Here's how I think it could work. Um, she says, which is true, we already keep, you know, pregnant women who are pregnant with their own child alive. So like, if, for example, a woman who's six or seven or eight months pregnant um, is involved in a serious car accident. And, you know, mm -hmm. there's been there's been disputed cases on both sides where families wanted to keep the, the woman alive long enough to the, to uh, allow a live birth, you know, the child to be delivered alive. And there's also been families who have said, no, we, we just want to let her die. We don't want to keep her alive. And that means that probably the baby might die too. Um, and I think those are decisions that should be allowed on either case. And that gets me into trouble, especially if I'm talking to pro-life people, mm. because they think no matter what, the woman must be kept alive so that the baby can, you know, be, you know, grow longer in the womb in order to be viable at birth. Mm. Um, and to me, that's problematic because then there's all, there's no reason to say what other things we couldn't keep women alive for. Right. To be brain dead surrogates. Right. <laughs> so we're not right. willing to say we don't 
keep people alive, even if the end is good, the means to that end are not means that I, I embrace. Oh my gosh. Thank you for naming that. Yes. The, this <laughs> like I said, I'm going to get, I'm going to get emails because people will say you, we can keep that woman alive long enough. So her baby's born. Okay. But we can't let her die because the baby's got to be saved at all costs. And I, I just, you know, like I said, there's no bottom to that. Right. The, the, Mary Lou uh, uh, talked about this in our episode where we were on, um, you know, what will happen to women if, if and when, you know, it's already happened. Uh, medical abortion is is criminalized. And she said it comes down to her as, um, you know, do you believe that a person should be an unwilling life support for another person? You know, so do you believe that, uh, and, and again, in this case, we're talking about a woman who isn't, you know, brain dead or in a coma. Um, but at the end of the day, do you believe that a, one person should be expected to be an unwilling life support for another person? And and I guess in the in the case of people arguing that a woman should be kept alive in order to have a live birth, you know, that their answer would be yes, I do believe that she should be because I mean, there's an unwillingness just in the state of her body. Like consciously, we can't know maybe what she would want in that case, unless she's written it out. But right. the body is saying this is not a hospitable environment to keep growing life. Like, I, I mean, the body is depending on what's going on, the body is shutting down, but it, it gets obviously the, there's there's a lot more there, yeah, but yeah. And because I am in the space more of biotech, you know, woo woo medical advances, there would be no argument to say, well, why we couldn't just keep people alive to test new drugs on them. Right. You know, if we need clinical trials on human beings, um, you know, why we couldn't, you know, do all kinds of experimentation on them because, you know, and the, and the woman that wrote this, you know, article proposing brain dead women um, be used as surrogates was quite callous and that this woman's, you know, has no life. Her, her sole purpose is to be, she called it a, a fetal container. Um, you know, so if we're going to be so callous to the the dead and the dying that we can keep them alive, you know, you can just imagine all kinds of Mengele, Nuremberg trial kind of experimentations that we could say, well, we we won't move the clinical trials to actually healthy human beings that want to be involved in a clinical trial. We'll use these as the interim to to understand more. And you know, I just think it's hugely problematic. Even if, like I said, even if the end goal is something right. good, all want like the George Bush days. You know, people were saying we're going to cure all these people, and I'm was saying. Yeah, but we're going to make a lot of women sick and unwell and ruin their future fertility so that we can cure people with diabetes and, and Parkinson's disease, which cures for those diseases would be wonderful. Um, but but again, the means to getting to there um, is problematic. Um, you had mentioned earlier that your, your in part, your intro to um, exposing kind of the harms of third-party reproductive technology was through your your daughters being targeted um, to become egg donors or to sell their eggs um, and whatnot. And I definitely experienced that in my mid-20s just on like Instagram ads and Facebook ads. Um, and, but more as like preservation for myself, like come to this like champagne hour pop-up <laughs> egg. Like they were literally like champagne happy hour um, pop-up, uh, clinics where you would get to learn all about, you know, the benefits of freezing your eggs. Um, and so, uh, that I know you, that, that is covered in, in your amazing film exploitation, which I found out about through a book called everything below the waist, it's yeah. Jennifer Block's book. So in exploitation, you go into, you know, why that's harmful. We're not going to do a whole episode on that, but for anyone who wants to know, like, why is egg freezing bad? Um, that's all in, in your film. But on that note, in terms of like body parts being used for things, you know, I do want to kind of ask you um, perhaps to talk about, you know, the, the legal gray zone of all of those eggs that are being retrieved, you know, like for example, and for anyone who's kind of listening, who doesn't know exactly what happens, 
you know, a, a woman who is either donating or selling or, or or storing for her own purposes down the line will go through the same process of kind of taking medication, which overstimulate uh, her her reproductive system to produce like as many eggs as possible. And then she's told, hey, we got 10 or we got 12 or we got whatever. But there's no way for her to really know how many and like i'm i'm curious about the legal obligation of these clinics to one be honest and transparent about how many eggs they've actually retrieved and then what legal rights she has after that's done you know where do the eggs you know in my uh, short way of asking is where do the eggs go and how do we know yeah we don't know um, you know, and, and that's really weird because when I worked in hospitals, if you took anything out of a human body, it got barcoded and marked. You know, if you were a blood donor, you know, the blood goes in a bag and it gets a barcode. And we know that this was, you know, Isabella's blood on this day we collected it. If you take somebody's gallbladder out, it goes to pathology with a date. You know, we took Mr. Jones's gallbladder out and an egg and sperm come out of the body and we don't know, they don't get a barcode. They don't get in a database. We don't say, well, these are Susie Q's eggs. And, you know, they all went and got frozen at, you know, fertility, happy egg clinic down the road. Um, she has no legal right. And most of the time when she's agreeing to be an egg donor, and I say donor in, in, in quotes, because mostly women are being paid, they wouldn't be doing this if they weren't being paid. You know, she doesn't, she's, she's told that maybe how many they got, but she doesn't know where they end up. So, you know, she, you know, one of the women in the film, they got 60 eggs, six zero. Now, once those eggs left her body, she, she, they were not hers. She was paid for them. Right. Um, she was compensated. These are now the, the eggs that are owned by the clinic and that clinic can then broker them. They can give two to this couple. They can give four to this couple. They So, you know, all these couples could be creating children from this one particular donor's eggs. Um, these children might grow up in maybe the same region, the same neighborhood or not, you know, basically half siblings um, and, and maybe someday through DNA testing, find each other, which is a lot of what these children now adults are doing through, you know, that we're here because of sperm or egg donation. But, um, you know, it's not, the egg is in her property. Um, she doesn't have ownership over the eggs because she's contractually, you know, agreed to, you can have my eggs and you pay me this amount of money. Um, and it's, and it's sad again, because we don't track these women. So one of the big, my, my colleagues and I, we were able to get, it was quite difficult to get in the um, um, medical literature, just a case report, case study. And um, we wanted to report on five otherwise very young, healthy egg donors who as very young women were diagnosed with breast cancer. And we know that egg donors are screened out. If you have a history of breast cancer, nobody wants to buy your eggs. Mm. You know, they just won't buy your eggs. So we know that egg donors are already selected out. So they don't have a history. And we know that breast cancer doesn't normally strike young women. You know, it's a much older cancer that women get not in their, you know, late 20s, early 30s. So we just tried to report on these five women because I would love to know and I don't want to keep I don't want women to do this because it's harmful and it's too risky. You, you may not have any of the risks, but, you know, it's like the smoker who doesn't get lung cancer, but we still say, don't take the risk. It's not worth it. Um, but I would love to know retrospectively how many women now who are being diagnosed with either breast cancers or other reproductive cancers and or their problems with their own fertility had in their past that they were egg donors, because mm -hmm. I think that data would be very telling instead of out of the blue, we have all, I mean, and we know that breast cancer has many other components to it, you know, environmental health issues, some of it's familial genetic. Um, but I think we would, we would, un, you know, the tagline of exploitation is the dirty little secrets. I think there's a lot of dirty little secrets that women are unaware of, um, not realizing that, that what they think is doing a good, wonderful thing today mm -hmm. <laughs> is going to, you know, be negatively um, impacting their health down the road. It's just a ripple effect of like terrible things, like internally, externally, like yeah. monetarily. I mean, it's just, it's like kind of a, it's just a losing, you know, the only short-term thing you could argue that that is happening that is positive, right, is that they are getting us a, 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 some amount of money 
in the short term. But as you talk about in the film, they tend to incur a lot of medical expenses and kind of psychological damage, you know, just the, as a result. I yeah. mean, I'm thinking of like, did you watch Three Identical Strangers? I did. Isn't that an amazing film? It's such a good film. It was so, so good. So powerful um, for, for those who haven't seen it. It's, it's the story of um, a, a set of identical triplets who were given up for adoption and a like crazy psychologist capitalized on this kind of um, uh, control group and put the three boys in three different homes and unknowingly uh or not to the parents the adopted parents knowledge uh or to obviously the little boys knowledge uh they were being um studied throughout their childhood they were told it was like about adoption but they didn't disclose and the parents that you know their adoptive parents didn't know they were one of three either so you know these are just not questions women are thinking about like oh if i if i donate or sell my eggs and uh they result in twins or um or even you know they put two of them in the same house and there's like there's you have no control over what happens to your biological offspring like you want you'd want to think oh go they're going to go to a good home or they're going to go to parents who really want them but that is completely out of your control so no. you think about like your offspring okay you you want to make some money you think you're doing a good thing but then to consider the like scary human experiment possibilities that are available when you introduce a technology like this, which is, you know, kind of all, what you talk about in your work, it, it's really scary. But most people are not going to that that place, yeah. right? Because we want to just believe that this is just going like for it's just a, for a good cause to a nice, you know, family who couldn't have kids. Yeah, who'd be be excellent parents. And you don't know, I mean, two of the women in exploitation lost their ability to have children of their own. So they have to live with the, you know, the realization that they have biological children out there somewhere, but they will never be able to, you know, welcome into their own home, their own biological children. You know, one woman, you know, whose daughter died of, you know, selling her eggs from cancer, you know, she realizes she'll never have grandchildren. I mean, it's, it right. is a ripple. It's a ripple. When you look in, in the, the situation of surrogacy, you know, you're oftentimes, especially in the case of you're giving your babies literally to strangers, you don't know who these people are. There's that creepy millionaire, bazillionaire Japanese guy that yes. was in custody of all like 13 babies. He had at one time, all these surrogate mothers. And you know that those surrogates were pregnant with eggs from donor women who were just answering an ad thinking they're helping somebody have a baby. And, mm -hmm. and they don't know that in fact, their eggs are in some third world country, poor impoverished woman's womb to become a child harem for some rich single Japanese guy. It was creepy. And, you know, but here's this little young girl who sees an ad and says, Oh, I could sure use $12,000. Um, and thinks she, in her mind, thinks that this is, you know, the leave it to Beaver, the Cleaver family that the baby's going to be raised in, in some home with a white picket fence. It's crazy. It's, it's so it's, wild. It's know. so wild. And, you know, we live, we were, um, Callie, my partner and I, we were on a call yesterday because there's been new legislation introduced at the federal level. And then there's several states that are introducing and it's called the right to build a family. So it's under this, you know, big, big heading of the right to build a family. And part of it is because we are living in a t difficult time in the United States post Roe versus Wade. Um, and as more conservative states and more red states and more blue states and liberal states are all lobbying to what are they going to, because, you know, the Supreme Court said we're going to turn it back to the states to decide. And so there's going to be federal legislation and state legislation that want to protect the right to build a, a family through assisted reproduction, through um, third party, egg, sperm, whatever. You don't have to be infertile. You don't have to be, um, you know, heterosexual. You don't have to be married. It's just, you just have a blanket right to build a family. Um, and I think part of that's coming from the fact that we've never, as a country, really reconciled assisted reproduction because we've all, all of us have been, it's as good it's just a good way to help people who would be great parents have children and what could be wrong with it. And now it's going to come back and we're going to see, I think we're going to see 50 more years of fighting around that because 
um, because the legis the the template legislation coming at the federal level is it's very thin. Basically, the government has no business telling you at all how you can build your family. And and any infringement on that right. And, you know, I like my rights. You know, I, I kind of want to leave the state I live in because I don't feel like I have my rights, the rights that I want. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we we all have to sort of reconcile what does this <clears throat> right mean? And, and for me, the, the right ends when my right means I have to exploit another person. I have to harm or risk another woman's body, health, life, whatever. My right, you know, ends when I'm doing something that might put children in in harm's way. Um, so it's going to be a really busy couple of years for us that, that doing the work we do. And they're doing all the right thing. As far as introducing this legislation, they've got their military shored up. Because Patty Murray, the senator from Washington State, wants to make sure that the military as a benefit have right to assisted reproduction technologies. So if our military gets wounded on the battlefield, and for some reason that means they lost their ability to, you know, reproduce, procreate, have a baby, their sperm, their testicles are blown off, you know, whatever. So we, so, you know, that will play to the more conservative mm-hmm. base in America that's very pro-military, wants our military wounded, our wounded vets to have access to care. Um, you know, they're one of the leading sponsors of this legislation is Tammy Duckworth, who's a military wounded vet, you know, senator from Illinois, who lost her legs, you know, in, in combat. And so she's endorsing this, this bill, you know, to the right to build a family. Um, and of course, they have the American Society of Reproductive Medicine and, you know, the, the typical big fertility professional bodies um, embracing it. And I'm sure the LGBTQ plus people will get on board with the right to build a family because they're going to want, you know, their access to all the bits and pieces that they don't have and that they need. That's going to be it's going to be a real CF, as we say. <laughs> I was just thank you for speaking. To, I was just going to ask, where do you see you know, how do you see it being pushed on both the right and the left? And you you answered the question. They're just appealing to the different kind of cultural aspects of, of both. And so for the left, it might be LGBT. And for the right, it's um, like a, okay. almost an insurance. Like you give your life to this country or you give your body to this country. And we're going to make sure that you have options right. should your, as you said, your testicles get blown up. Um, so that's, oh my God, it's so wild. I was recently asked, on Instagram, what is happening to the body parts of trans medicalized uh, men and women? So, you know, like what happens to the healthy breast tissue of women who have had double mastectomy? Uh, What happens to, you know, a penis that's been removed for a man who, you know, is going to quote, get a neo-vagina? And yeah, I was wondering if if you knew any, you know, we were talking about kind of the legal gray zone or the lack of transparency around like egg donation. What do you think is going on with like the medical sales of the healthy uteruses, for example, that are, that are being taken out of uh, women under the guise of, you know, gender identity medicine? That's a good question. And I, I don't have the answer to that. I can speculate. I mean, when I think about the years, years and years I spent in hospitals, you know, when, when some, you know, this is all stuff that's happening in an operating room, right? You take the patient in the operating room, you cut off their healthy breasts, you take out their perfectly beautiful uterus, you, you chop off their healthy penis and testicles. I mean, it all ends up in the pathology lab. I mean, that's where it leaves the operating room and it goes to pathology. It doesn't leave the operating room and, and get thrown on a truck that goes off to some lab where they're doing experimentation. Um, so once it, once it gets to pathology, um, I don't know. I don't know what the laws are as far as, um, you know, it has this one as this person, you know, signed away their right, you know, they, they can't take, they can't say, once you chop off my healthy breasts, please put them in a jar. I'd like to take them home with me. You know, you can't do that. So we know that the person who is, has surrendered their their body parts doesn't, you know, doesn't have ownership. Um, again, my my, arg- my article, who owns the body and who owns the body parts? Um, but I don't know. I think, I think they're probably, because I know that it happens 
at major universities. I know that there's co-mingling between the researchers and the fertility clinics. So like, you know, we get all these eggs and, you know, we make all these embryos and we're not going to use them all. They go to the researchers without people knowing about that. It's just sort of mm. a, hey, we've got extra. So I, I I guess I could imagine that there would be people that would be doing research, say on breast cancer. And we have all this breast tissue. Would you, you know, I don't know, but I can imagine that that's not, it's not like tinfoil hat stuff that I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I don't know what, like, if there are laws in place to allow that to happen, or if there's laws in place that, that put in systems of how it can happen, if it's allowed to happen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm going to poke around. Maybe I'll write something on that if I find out. Dr. Suzanne Forbes-Veerling talked about the medical sales of placentas and how there's a legal gray zone there. And as you mentioned, you know, even to take your placenta out of the hospital is quite tricky. And like as a doula, that was one of my roles is to kind of sneak it in the Tupperware and put it on (laughs) ice, you know, while the nurses aren't looking. Um, But I was yelled at and caught many times. But but women wanted to take them home, right? Rightfully, you know, they grew them, but they technically did sign somewhere that it's actually not theirs. So yeah, as far as I I understand with the placentas, it is a legal gray zone. And then the- And you know what they would be used for? Yes. So yeah, Dr. Suzanne talked a lot about um, the medical sales companies that partner with the hospitals. And I've I've talked to some of these owners of the medical sales companies, uh, like med spas, and Mm. they are very transparent about how awesome the placenta is for their purposes, which is to sell- laser treatments for skin and help men grow hair back and um, Mm. all sorts of like spa-like services, cosmetic services that come from the um, Wharton's jelly, the umbilical cord, the placental tissue, the blood and and whatnot. So Mm. there's like medicinal qualities there, but doesn't excuse obviously being like stolen. Like the profit margins are huge. So it had me thinking, okay, well, if that's happening, there's got to be other medical sales companies who are like also buying the uteruses. I think it's probably a similar answer, which is that it's kind of uncharted ter- territory. Like there aren't like the technology is moving so fast that the laws aren't there yet to support whatever's going on covertly like around this. But did you, I, but I also came across an article and I wonder if you could speak to this too about, a uterine transplant for a woman in, I think it was Ohio, where they were able to successfully give her a uterine transplant. She was able to carry a child, allegedly, if you want to like believe that this is even real, because I don't know what the hell, it's, it's like a whole psyop, but who knows. But then the article says that she had to get the uterus that was not hers uh, eventually taken out because of like some kind of sepsis or infection. Yeah. Um, I I remember that case, but I don't remember that she actually had a baby. I think she had to have the uterus removed before before she had a a pregnancy. Um, And I think it was Ohio because I believe it was Cleveland Clinic where this was where this uterine transplant happened. Um, You know, the success on uterine transplants is pretty dismal. And Callie's written about it. And we both have written about our new film, The Detent transition diaries is coming out in book this year and you know we have a very long chapter on um you know the history of how we got to where we are today in medicine mm-hmm. and we we address the uterine transplants i think um there was a woman in brazil who had a uterine transplant and did have a successful life birth i think that baby is still alive that may be the only one there's been a couple of women that had uterine transplants and the babies were born but didn't live very long at all um, oh, most of the time it does, it doesn't, and it hasn't, you know, but you know, that's the good and the bad of all this experimentation. It takes a lot of failures, right. To then get it right. Um, and meanwhile, these women and, and their children, the unborn, you know, future children are going to be guinea pigs. And, mm-hmm. you know, what people don't realize, you know, the woman has a C-section to have the uterus put in then she has to take anti-rejection drugs for the, you know, the whole duration of the pregnancy to not reject the the uterus, we don't have any idea of the impact on the developing fetus, you know, embryo that's, you know, being exposed to anti-rejection drugs. If the woman wants to not stay on anti-rejection drugs, she has to have a hysterectomy after delivery to have the uterus removed. 
but she also has to have a C-section to have the baby delivered because we're not delivering babies via vaginally you on uterine transplants. So this woman is having like basically three C-sections, three surgeries to have one, one baby, you know, to put the uterus in, to have the baby, and then they take the uterus out, or she has to stay on anti-rejection drugs. And some proposals say yes, because she may want to have another baby in a couple of years. So for a couple of years longer, she'll stay on this medication to not reject this and now we have men that want uterine transplants. So right. it's just, it's so it's, bad. That, it's crazy. Had, that, oh my gosh, that had not occurred to me. Yeah. That that's three different C-sections. So I, I looked it up and it, it looks like if, if we want to believe what they wrote, it's a baby born via uterine transplant. So Cleveland clinics, clinical trial milestones became the first in North America to deliver a baby from a deceased donor uterine transplant in 2019 performed their first embryo transfer in a uterus recipient resulting in pregnancy in 2018 and then performed the nation's first uterine transplant in 2016, which was removed in 2016. Also later that year, a month later, uh, due to a candida infection. I think that's the one I'm thinking of. So she didn't have the baby, correct? It was earlier. Yeah. 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 But it's all so experimental. And you, I mean, I understand the heartbreak of fertility and fertility. I understand that. I don't ever want to have people think that I don't care about people that have those, you know, sad realities. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, I think, is it so important to who we are as women that we have to do what I see as extreme and potentially seriously harmful, detrimental to your health and or your future child's health, you know, these, these jizitsu moves to, you know, to have a baby. Is it, is it, is our life incomplete if we can't have that? Right. And and I think that's something that we have to come to terms with as a society. You're, you're still a wonderful human being, you know, as women, we're still, we're still women with all the wonderful qualities and capabilities of women. And we can, we can mother and nurture in all kinds of ways, even if we don't have our own, you know, children. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe we could, maybe perhaps we can end or, or, or move into the, um, the other piece that you wrote recently about uh, the two the mice that was created by two cell lines from a male mice. I, I don't really I don't even understand what I was reading. It's all it's all very scientific. Um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, would you maybe maybe talk about that? Yeah. So so some you know I've been fighting you know to keep your hands off women's ovaries, keep your hands off women's wombs you know, leave women's reproductive bodies alone. And so, you know, some scientists have thought, well, you know, we can, we can make egg and sperm, right? So there's been a lot of research and work in trying to just synthetically manufacture egg and sperm. Then we won't need sperm donors. We won't need to harm women's eggs. We can, you know, just make egg and sperm in the lab. And, you know, again, it gets me back to, is this safe? You know, do you want to be the first person who signed your children up to be made by synthetic egg and sperm grown in a you know uterus? So the this particular story was the scientists took, um, you know, the male DNA, the male sperm. And when you think back to the, the embryonic stem cell debate of the George Bush era, everybody wanted the embryonic stem cell debates, the, the IPS cells there, because think of it as a job description. If you're at that that embryonic level of a cell, you haven't been given your job description yet. You don't know yet if you're going to grow up to be brain cells or bone cells or blood cells or make livers. And so the scientists wanted those cells because they could manipulate them. They could say, we're not going to let you grow up and figure out what you were designed to be. Mm. We're going to manipulate you to become a brain cell or to become a bone cell. And so the scientists were after that, because if you were just doing breast cancer research, you could take these embryonic cells and make them grow up to be breast cells and do your research on, you know, a specific cell line. So that was kind of the holy grail. So these scientists said, well, we'll just take the cells from the man, we'll turn them back to their embryonic-like state, and then we'll program them to be an XX. 
So from the male, they took the embryonic-like cells and sort of reprogrammed them to be female. Does that make sense? I see. Okay. So now they didn't need a woman, right? Because they were just able to use the cells from a man, reprogrammed back to the embryonic state and manipulate them. And voila, they made the mice. I, so, since I wrote the article, I, I've tested out so many like like illustrations, like how could I illustrate this? And right. I, I always I always bring myself back to the kitchen and trying to like, okay, you're making a cake and you normally make the cake this way but you change something in the recipe and you make it this way and it's still a cake, you know? Mm -hmm. So, and I don't know if that works. I don't know if that helps it at all, but you know, you have these two, two men, two male gametes and you needed a male and a a female gamete to make the baby. So you change the the male Mm -hmm. one to become the female one. And then you put them together. And so you still had a mice. People would say, well, is that still a mice? I, I would argue it's still a mice. It's a, it's a manufactured it's a, you know, a human made, you know, when you look at when we cloned Dolly the sheep, at first Dolly the sheep seemed fine. And then Dolly the sheep got really, really fat and obese and unhealthy and had to be euthanized. But at first, you know, Dolly the sheep looked mm. like a sheep, even though she was made through cloning. Um, so, so the argument is that by doing this, that we can do all kinds of, we can help women and men conceive that have infertility issues, like, you know, we wouldn't have to have an egg donor. We could just use your husband and we could turn, you know, his gametes and keep some of his gametes male and turn some of his gametes cells into, you know, female and make eggs out of his sperm cells. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, this is all being like the product in this case are, are mice. the products are mice. So this isn't, you know, how far are they from doing what you just described, like for an infertile couple. Yeah, I don't I don't know because I don't have that kind of like, you know, vision into the future. I think we're closer to artificial wombs than we are to doing this this technology at the at the gamete level with, you know, taking the cells from two men and allowing them to, you know, recreate what the woman would contribute using their own cells. I think that's farther on down the line. Um, Mm -hmm. But also I am concerned because, you know, we have this whole area called CRISPR technology, which is the gene editing where we can go in and find the gene that we don't like that's and knock it out or cut it out. Um, and, And that for a while was put on the back burner because people were saying, we don't know if this is safe. Um, but, you know, now we're kind of becoming more comfortable with it. And the scientific community is feeling more like we should move forward because, you know, we might be just minutes away from all these breakthroughs from cure. Again, it gets back to curing disease, you know, and I, I kind of go, well, we're all going to die. And why don't we spend a lot more of our resources in getting people just healthy I, I like to fight diseases. I don't like to be sick, you know, but but everything is just motivated by our inability to recognize that we are eventually going to be become sick or die or get a cancer or whatever. Um, and, and shouldn't medicine and science and technology and all these break, breakthroughs advance with a lot more ethical caution mm-hmm. guardrails? Um, and, you know, why nobody... Nobody foresaw that we'd have a million frozen human embryos in the United States. And many of them are just, you know, there were some couple that just uh, rescued two frozen embryos and the embryos had been frozen for 30 years. And the husband and wife who rescued these embryos weren't even born when these embryos were created and stuck in the freezer. And everybody was going, isn't this wonderful? Isn't this great? Oh my God, this is amazing, this family. And I'm going, that's this human experimentation. That's this. And, and the baby was born. The, right? Yeah. yeah and I the think, baby's living I was, like. I think it was twins even. I'd have to go back and refresh my memory. But I just remember thinking these embryos, because yeah, it was embryos were frozen before these this husband and wife, this couple, whatever were even born. And I'm just like, that is just one, it's bizarre. It's freaky, scary. We don't know what the impact of freezing our ourselves at that tiny little early stage of human development, 
for, I mean, I wouldn't eat hamburger in my freezer that had been in there for 30 years, no. let alone pull my kids out and say, well, we're ready for you now. I don't know. It's just, it's bizarre. That is but yeah, wild. people were celebrating it. And I was it's kind of like the mean party pooper going, I don't think that's a good, a good thing to do. Uh, you know, it is such a crisis. Yeah. What, what this has led to, I mean, I, I supported so many, I mean, when I was in New York as a doula, a third probably of my clients, um, had, yeah, had gone through ID, IVF. Um, I supported one woman who was 48, who was carrying an egg donor's egg. So an embryo made from an egg donor and then her husband's sperm. And a lot of them were really transparent about like how complicated it was and that they thought that there actually should be gatekeeping around it and how it is totally bizarre and weird to have, you know, another embryo stored somewhere and they don't know if they want to have another kid, but they don't want to destroy it, but they're paying the storage fees for it and how, how just how <laughs> utterly bizarre and like admitting that they like, you know, I think on some level, this is my projection, but hadn't thought it through all the way, you know, hadn't thought it through to its logical conclusion or unknown conclusion or open-ended, you know, possibilities. Well, and I know, you know, you and, um, and Jennifer Belak and, and us, you know, the whole transhumanist remaking humanity, you know, we're going to become post-human, we're going to become something other, you know, the more we just sort of surrender and give away our bodies to technology, you know, to fix, to treat, to cure, to manipulate, to do whatever, you know, we're, we're just sort of signing, we're, you know, we're, we're agreeing to this. Mm. Um, and for people like me and, and you and others who try to do the, you know, the stop and the wait, you know, we're, you know, fear mongering, we're Luddites, we're all kinds of the phobias and bigots and whatever, you know, um, you just want people to die. I'm like, well, no, I don't just want people to die, but I want people to live, you know, the best life they can live naturally, you know, and, and whether that's a life of 10 years or a life of 100 years, you know, you know we just sort of, you know, are happy with, you know, the, the life that we get knowing that we've done what we could to take care of our bodies. Um, so it's, I don't know how, you know, people always say, can you put the genie back in the bottle? I think it was Mary Lou. It might've been on your show, but I heard her say, say it on somebody's show, but you know, it's just hard to say no to technology. And you see that with pregnant women, mm -hmm. you know, you get this test and you get that test and you have this monitor and you do this. And it's, it's hard to say no, because you're basically being told you need this. And you've got this authority figure, your physician, your, you know, your trusted whoever, telling you that you need to do this. We saw that with, you know, COVID and the vaccines and you need to do this and you need to do this. And, you know, and it's for the people who pushed back and said, uh, thank you. No, no, thank you. You know, what, what happened to the people who don't hop on the bus, you know? Um, and I, I see that so much in healthcare, you know, that, you know, how, how soon are, when I watched Gattaca, the movie Gattaca, which I don't know if any of your listeners have watched it, but it's a great movie, but it came out when I was in graduate school. It was a sci-fi. If you watch Gattaca now, it's Gattaca is like mainstream. You know, it was a good Uma Thurman, Ethan Hawke movie all about designer children. And why would you want to leave anything to chance? You know, mm -hmm. why would you want to just have a child the old fashioned way and roll the odds that your child might not be perfect and, you know, go to the clinic and we can make sure that you get the child exactly what you want to your specification and how soon people feel like, well, they have to do that or they're not good parents. Right. Or it's a way to, yeah, was it, I think you must have shared this where it was like, uh, they were promoting that you could like uh, rule out certain mental illnesses or they're like lying. Basically, it's just total lies where they're like, hey, if you do this kind of gene selection, you can opt out of Alzheimer's or you can opt out of schizophrenia yeah. or like, you know, some kind of false promise to get yeah. people on board. But I have had friends talk to me about this, that their family members are considering doing these technologies because they think yeah. that this is their out. Like what you say, like leaving it, why leave it to chance when you know, right. you, could, you know, why not let mother, why, why let mother nature screw up for you. And I don't want to be a spoiler alert, but in, in the movie, Gattaca, the family, the husband and wife, 
you know, had a child the old fashioned way. And then they had the gene rich, you know, mm. uh, child. And of course the gene, you know, you know, you, you can't predict that your child is going to be what the, they tell you're going to be. I mean, they always joke about what, what if you could clone Tiger Woods, would you go clone Tiger Woods? Well, what if the clone of Tiger Woods hates golf? Or, right. or what if the clone of Tiger Woods gets hit by a bus and ends up in a wheelchair, you know, and then you're disappointed because, well, you wanted a child that had, you know, these kind of capabilities and these kind of talents and they're either A, not interested or B, circumstances rendered them un- unable to fill that. And you see that in surrogacy with these contracts with these people who said, you know, like Kelly and Big Fertility, one couple paid for sex selection and they transferred a boy and a girl embryo. And they paid for extra because they wanted a boy and a girl. And what happened was she miscarried the girl embryo and the boy embryo split. But they, they didn't know that. They didn't know that until the ultrasound. And when Kelly said, I'm having two boys, and she thought they would be happy, they were pissed because they paid five grand extra to have a girl and a boy embryo. And they didn't want two boys. And the whole you know pregnancy was just you know, a relationship gone sour. And she had to deal with these people that kept saying, who screwed up? Who did something wrong? Whose fault is this? We don't want a boy and a girl. We, you know, we, we wanted a boy and a girl, not two boys. You know, but when you get down to ordering your children by like a little, you go to the salad bar and you want the peas and your carrots and you don't want the mushrooms. You don't want croutons. (laughs) It's crazy. It's wild. Oh, I forgot about that part. I forgot about that part. Oh my gosh. Okay. Everyone, if you haven't already, you need to watch all of Jennifer's films. I'm going to link your documentaries in the, in the show notes and the website and the articles that, that you, the recently, that you recently published. And um, there's so many, oh my gosh. Well, what can you give us a bit of a, like a teaser of what you're going to be talking about in Austin kind of, you know, the short answer will be how did medicine go so terribly wrong? in the case of the gender affirming approach only that we're seeing here in the United Mm. States. So that's kind of what I'll talk about and, Mm. and hopefully give some insights for how we can get, get back on the right foot again. Right. And, and something that you, you talk about too, which we haven't really, we didn't really touch on, but the, that, that with the medicalizing of children, there is a whole new industry for third-party reproduction in terms of fertility preservation or what's called fertility preservation with quotes, as you've just, you know, talked about. Um, can you maybe just say a few words on, on, yeah. on so, what that is? You know, I wasn't planning to weigh in on the transgender debate because it was sort of out of our lane. You know, our lane has been pretty hardcore in assisted reproductive technology. And then when we found out when children are either about to have their puberty blocked um, or they're going to go on cross-sex hormones after they've already been through puberty. Cause we know both of those blocking puberty and putting people on cross-sex hormones damages fertility. These children are offered fertility preservation. So in the case of a child who hasn't gone through puberty yet, they don't have egg that are mature or sperm yet, but they have ovarian tissue and, um, sp- sperm tissue. So they'll actually do freezing of the ovarian and the the sperm tissue um, since they can't capture eggs. But for the children that are post-puberty that do have viable eggs and or mature sperm, they will actually freeze and bank egg or sperm. And these are young children who can't even imagine, do I want children? What is, what is an egg or a sperm? I mean, can you imagine talking oh to like God. a little nine-year-old boy and, you know, do you want to freeze them? It's just crazy. And, uh, and again, because we know that this is such high failure, um, you know, that these, they're being offered false, false hope and chil- children can't consent. So it's, it's overwhelmingly the parents that are giving permission to preserve their son or daughter's fertility, um, and just sort of all the mind games that that goes, I mean, I've been doing a lot because I'm writing a, a medical uh, journal article um, with a couple of other um, colleagues of mine on be offering fertility preservation to transgender youth. Um, and it's, it's just, it's, it's totally experimental. I mean, one area where we have a little bit of data is like, you know, children that are cancer patients that when they are, we know that they're going to be put on chemo and or radiation as far as their cancer treatment, 
Um, and in those cases, those children, we have some data on those children being offered fertility preservation, but it's only if we think the cancer treatment, the chemo and the radiation will harm their fertility. Because if it's a, if it's a treatment that we don't think will impact their fertility, they're not even offered that at all. Um, but we don't have a lot of data on that population of children, cancer patients, then going on, you know, as they grow up and using their banked frozen egg and sperm to see if they can then have, have children. So it's totally experimental. And when you're talking about, you know, a female body that's been taking high, high, high tes- testosterone, and then it's going to try to implant an embryo in their uterus if they haven't had their uterus removed. So, you know, what are the implications of the testosterone during the pregnancy on the developing fetus? It's a mess. So, yeah. And, you know, we, we say you make a patient for life when you trans these people, right? And you right. make a double patient for life if they're going to want to then try to have a child down the road mm-hmm. through fertility medicine. And that's very expensive. And it's just, I mean, these people need to lose their license. It is just like that ripple effect. It's such a complex, so many intersecting industries and conflicts. And, you know, uh, I appreciate that. Yeah, what you're doing is just talking about that, you know, the, the ethics behind all of this, that it's not just cool technology and doesn't mean we should just because we can. And yeah, so please, anyone listening, join us in Austin. You're going to learn more from jennifer and our other the, the other panelists um so i'll link that in the show notes too to, to get your tickets to join us um is there anything you wanted to mention before we close well i like to always try to land land on some kind of a happier note when you're talking about such heavy things and i do think that um all you know i like to use the phrase it's not mine you know mother nature always bats last and we think we're so smart and so wise and we have it all figured out and we just embrace all this wonderful stuff. And, um, you know, we, we don't, we don't get to call all the shots. <laughs> so I think if we can just have a lot more humility, um, in our role on this planet and how interconnected things are and how, how delicate and fragile things are. So maybe more humility and just more respect before we charge off and we do things that have five and 10 years down the road and longer unintended consequences we couldn't even imagine. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend or family member who needs to hear this content. And if you do share it on social media, don't forget to follow and tag me at whose body is it. So until next time.